Hello everyone, uh, my name is Thomas and I'm with Emma and with Chris and welcome back to Paleo Party. It's a podcast where we invite a new paleo guest to hang out with us and talk nonsense about paleontology. So today we have a very special guest. Um, she's an experimental taphonomist currently based in Switzerland. She's a polychaete worm aficionado. It's Dr. Orla Bathenroy, everyone. Woo! <laughs> so we're asking all of our guests to attempt to explain their research using the OpCore 5 text editor, which only allows you to use the 1000 most commonly used words in the English language. Obviously, this is a bit extreme. You can have a look on our website of other people's goes and our own goes ourselves. Um, but Orla has prepared one. Would you like to take it away, Orla? Sure, I'm going to give it a go. Uh, all animals in the world are made of different parts. Some of these parts are soft, like your eyes, and some parts are hard, like your teeth. A lot of animals living today and in the past have whole bodies made up of only soft parts. A lot of the time, nothing is left over from animals that were completely soft-bodied, and this is because when they die, the soft parts wear down easily and really fast. My work tries to understand what kind of situations help keep these soft parts safe from becoming nothing, and also what situations wears them down more easily. I'm really interested in the soft-bodied animals that lived underwater a long time ago. I like looking at how moving water, different rock grounds, and other situations that happen in the world change the dead animals before we find them many years later. Shinee. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it was like your research was made for upgoing yeah. time. Well, taphonomists, yeah. we're very simple people. Yeah, we're very we, simple. We, we're very <laughs> simple people. We don't, we're not, we don't have fancy words. That's a lie. We have very fancy words. Yeah. But that was really good. Yeah. Um, you, what yeah, was that? Hold on. Just one. So you said that you work, uh, what was it? Different rock rounds. Different rock rounds. Oh, God. <laughs> I couldn't figure out a word. <laughs> substrates. <laughs> no, that was pretty good. I like that bit. <laughs> Do you need to add anything to that at all? Like we normally ask people to explain it in ordinary terms, but... Um, <laughs> I think I sort of totally left out the fact, the experimental side of things, because I thought that was getting very complicated to say uh, on Upgoer 5. So I suppose really to add to that is, you know, I'm looking at taphonomic bias. And what that is, is essentially just processes that are physical, uh, chemical uh, sort of processes that happen um, sort of on land in the ocean and how they affect the remains of animals uh, after they die. And sometimes I think Thomas would agree with me, taphonomic bias is something that happens before. Sometimes where they live is going to bias whether or not they get preserved into the fossil record. And if we find anything at all, and that becomes increasingly harder when those animals are completely soft bodied. Um, so a lot of taphonomy, uh, taphonomic research kind of is revolved around looking at the soft bodied animals because they give us really important biological information. So that's yeah. kind of Jimmy's summary of taphonomy. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, that, I think you've summarized it very well. Um, Thanks. You're positively glowing thinking that you're not outnumbered this week. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I feel the same. I feel like back me up now, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just about to say, um, I was just quickly going to interject that on the Paleo Party website, you can actually read the Upgo Fives for uh, Emma, Christopher and for myself. And I was just going to say, Orla, do you know what my Upgo Five says? Because mine's very, very short. No, but I, I feel actually I... you guys had them as well. Yeah, you, 
you can find so if you go onto the about page on the paleo party website and hover your okay. mouse over the top of the faces you can see it mine says that thomas studies what happens when an animal dies and when they turn into rock he does this by watching what happens to animals after they die as they turn to water and then to nothing his job smells bad <laughs> and i feel this like this is also entirely true yeah exactly <laughs> Uh, Chris and I suffer from the lack of the word diversity and uh, other things yeah. similar to that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess yeah. that yeah, that kind of covers all of us. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, two diversity workers two versus two taphonomous workers. Oh my god, we should have a fight. We should have some kind of <laughs> Well, uh, I would say for our listeners that although I am well up for fighting Dr. Christopher Dean in his hat, that social distancing rules mean I currently can't reach him. <laughs> Well, we might not be able to have a fight, but uh, you guys can potentially ask us some questions because we're a nice live podcast. Um, so if you have any questions for Ola about her work, about her anything, I guess. At all about Irish us, rugby, about... <laughs> <laughs> in there with the important topics. Um, just write them in on the old Twitch chat or send them in to Twitter and we will do our best to answer them as quickly as before. So I think, I think this would be a good time to start then with let's talk a little bit or not let's, I'm saying this because I'm so excited, but <laughs> Orla, can you, can you walk us through what is taphonomy and why is it important and what do you do within taphonomy? Yeah, so I think taphonomy actually, when you break it down, is a very understandable thing that we do but it's actually a very complicated thing that we do at the same time. I think those things are in equal parts because what we're doing is we're looking at processes that I think everyone can understand. We're looking at physical, chemical, biological processes that happen on the earth today, and they've also happened in the past. So things like we've all learned about diagenesis in sort of geography or things like that. We understand that heat and temperature change and these kind of processes um, will affect an animal when it dies on what exactly is preserved. And what we try to do um, as taphonomists is try to understand these different processes that can happen to an animal when it dies and sort of, you know, and the environmental conditions surrounding when it dies and try to understand how it affects the overall change or outlook of our trace or our body fossil in the fossil record. Um, and what that would mean then for how we reconstruct the animal how we reconstruct the community that it was a part of, um, what it physically looked like, and sort of the original community that it might have been a part of to begin with, which is something that I try to look at quite a lot. Um, and I think the best way that we try to do that, especially sort of in the last 10 to 15 years, I think there's been a huge sort of uh, influx of sort of experimental taphonomists, which is great. Um, using all kinds of machinery, we kind of basically pluck things from every other science uh, world and bring them into ours, which is a nice thing. I think taphonomists don't always come from a paleo biological background. And what we do is we use experiments um, in real time to look at these processes and how they affect biological remains. Um, so for me and, and, and Thomas as well, using experiments, the best thing about it is a lot of these processes that happen uh, that bias uh, animals, uh, therefore the fossil record, is they can be done on human timescale. So we can go in one day, actually perform an experiment in a matter of minutes or hours and come out and have a result and understand something 
uh, that we didn't know before about something when it, about an animal when it dies. So that's sort of the the basis of sort of taphonomy, I think, as a whole. I was actually going to ask about your experiments because obviously we have two taphonomists <laughs> here in the uh, in the Paleo Party studio today, um, and I know a little bit about what Thomas does in terms of his experiments. Mm -hmm. Lots of rotting rotting fish and acidity probes yeah. and all these fun bits and pieces. Um, but your experiments are a little bit different. Uh, yeah. I just wondered if you want to talk a little bit about, yeah, about what you get up to with experiments. Um, sure. So in the past few years, uh, sort of during my PhD, really, uh, what I was kind of sort of honing in on was biases when it came to looking at transport. And in particular, when we think of animals, when we think of sort of animals with hard parts, compared to soft parts, the hard parts like your bones and your teeth are going to get transported a lot easier in the ocean, in rivers, for example, um, and in the sea. But when it comes to soft parts and soft bodied organisms, they're much harder uh, to be transported, number one. Transport by nature is a destructive process. So the assumption for a long time in paleontology has always been that, well, it mustn't have traveled that far or soft body organisms can't travel at all because they're just going to get completely annihilated, which is fair enough, a completely kind of easy way to, to think about these things. But really with my work is I'm trying to look at these sort of transport induced biases that we know definitely exist in a lot of um, paleo communities. Because when we look at these paleo communities, um, we see that a lot of these fossils are fossilized in um, rock strata, in rock beds, um, that have evidence, uh, geologically speaking, of different type of flows that were involved with their deposition. And we know, especially for soft-bodied organisms, that when, when they die and when they get preserved, when they actually get preserved in the fossil record, which is quite rare, that certain conditions need to exist uh, to allow those soft bodies to be preserved. And one of them being has always been rapid burial, that we need rapid burial to exist, to smother these animals in, in some kind of sediment and sort of hide them away from the world, from scavenging and predators, for example. Um, and what I've tried to do with my experiments is use a magical, <laughs> amazing piece of equipment called um, a flume tank or an annular flume. And what this machine does is essentially it recreates um, flows that happen in the ocean that are called uh, sediment gravity flows. And they're essentially, when you think of going from sort of shallow marine into the deep marine basin, you have these massive Grand Canyon sort of uh, topography. And what you happen is this kind of more warmer water with a different kind of sediment uh, has a different sort of density to the water uh, cold water with a different kind of sediment at the bottom of the ocean. And you get these sort of um, currents of just pure kind of water bodies moving from these canyons down into the deeper marine basin. And this flume tank kind of recreates these kind of flows and the base of that kind of flow. And what I try to do with my experiments is I put a poor unknowing soft bodied organism <laughs> into this flume tank that spins around really fast. Just think about a massive washing machine. It's the only way to do it. Uh, <laughs> I put it into that, and I see what happens. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow. How how big is this magical washing machine? Um, how, uh, it, it's actually bigger than a lot of people expect it to be. And um, 
you can get annular flumes that sit on your desk. You can get ones that are really small, so maybe 20 centimeters wide that would sit on your desk. Um, I'd love to have them. <laughs> and then you can get uh, the flumes that I was using. The annular flume is about, oh gosh, let me think now. Uh, I think it's about a meter wide, if I'm, I'm trying to think about mm -hmm. my arm. Okay. It's, it's probably about over a meter wide. I actually can't think of dimensions off the top of my head, but it's over a meter wide. And the channel itself where the actual flow is recreated is about 15 centimeters wide. And the channel is about 60 centimeters in height. So when we think of these flows that happen in the ocean, these sediment gravity flows, they can be meters high. So really the flume, it's recreating the base of that flow and these important interactions that happen with the seafloor and the sediment and the water on top of that. Oh, nice. That's pretty, that's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive piece of machinery to look at and watch. You get easily mesmerized by it. <laughs> so Naseba has asked a great question, which is um, how many worms can fit in the machine? Um, the answer I imagine is a lot, but how many do yeah. you put in at a time? Like what, what, walk us yeah. through an experiment to try and recreate one of these ancient landslides. Okay, uh, so, marine landslides, I should say. No, no, yeah, dead right. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so I tested different, how many different amount of polychaetes, these worms that I could put in. Um, not a good idea. <laughs> it turns out it's not, a, you can only use one at a time, basically, because it is a flume. If you think of a washing machine, okay, but then let's turn it, I think what way, turn it, on its head. So it's kind of sitting like this, you know, and it's spinning around. Like <laughs> so, for those for those people who are listening on the podcast, or has just mimed putting a washing machine on its back and then spinning it so it's facing upwards. Yeah, just think about putting your washing machine on the floor, just turning it upside down on the floor, right? Uh, when you put a worm in this kind of washing machine and it's spinning around, uh, the top of my fancy washing machine counter rotates to the bottom. So to, to make this certain kind of very straight, continuous flow, right? Um, but because of the dynamics of the flume, basically with the worm, and if you think about a worm's body, it just tangles with other worms. So what you end up happening when you put, as I did, about six worms in the flume. Oh, no. I didn't like where this was going. It just... It's a worm octopus. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> if, it's only, so, if there's only six worms, then it's not an octopus, is it? Yeah. And they're just tied together in a knot. Oh, you know? gosh. It's like King Rat. You have to oh, yeah. you try to unravel them. But... Jim, oh, Jim, Jim Jam, friend of the show, Jim Jam, has literally said, a worm king. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if it's not just polychaetes, you can put a lot of different things in there. Yeah. I was going to ask very quickly, how big are polychaete worms that you yeah. put in? Are, are they like tiny or like... like so basically no that was the other sort of, that's another kind of logistics when you're thinking about experiments as well in particular, is you actually need to be careful with sizes and the actual body shape of the animal you're putting in there um, because of the paddles that spin around the top of the flume. So the paddles is a certain amount of paddle that's actually in the water when it's spinning. Um, so if you have something like a polychaete and obviously it's, it's very long and stretchy, um, it can get tangled around those paddles. 
I have also happened. Oh, no. <laughs> what a way to go! Yeah. Uh, so basically, you have to you have to be very careful with the animals that you're using and the size. So size, actually, I think I had them the first set of experiments up to twenty five centimeters. Um, but Big. then, yeah. But then I think I kind of averaged it out between ten and fifteen in the end because okay. they stretch when they've spent so much time in the plume. So I've um, had a whole polychaete come out at 50 centimeters. They already just kind of get pulled apart, like yeah. stretch Armstrong. Yeah, and it just goes to show like this, I'm recreating a flow that, you know, is a very common type of flow that happens in the ocean thousands of times a day and how it can actually completely warp and change at, oh, at, oh. A, a, an animal unrecognizably into something else. <laughs> it's not just a bias of what you preserve or what you don't preserve but it's also a bias that like changes the, the shape the morphology yeah. of an animal in itself absolutely oh, crazy. i never would have thought of that that is no, uh, i didn't that's, crazy. <laughs> that's what's so interesting about this group here actually because we all work on like some aspect of how we get what we get when we look at the fossil record and we yeah. all come at it from different angles and it's so fun to learn from other people I was hoping to move away from worm demise maybe for a second. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I can't let you do that. I can't let you do that. Topic. Come on. Chat, chat is going wild for worms right <laughs> now. I haven't talked about when they come out alive as well. Oh, oh my goodness. Down. Yeah. Whoa. This is this is what this is what my next question was gonna be. So like before okay. Let's take a second. We're all very excited about the polychaetes. So there's a couple of questions that have popped up. I f firstly, I have to say, it's not a question, but Naseba has absolutely rinsed us where she said, have you guys heard of a top-loading washing machine? Oh my God. <laughs> Is this the American-style <laughs> top-loading washing machine? Yeah, that's like, they use and, them in America, don't they? You know, where they like, I actually have to... know people that use them to look at microplastics and the effects of um, turbulence from the same flow as I'm making, the effects of turbulence and how it breaks down plastics. They, so, they use the same flumes and they also use washing machines. They literally buy go. loads of washing machines. Who said so you fancy that? Yeah. Science and microplastics thinks it's so fancy, but actually they're just buying a load of washing machines. So there you go. That's that's embarrassing <laughs> that we didn't even consider top loading. Um, and, and as a side note, while I'm quickly here, someone has already complimented uh, Dr. Dean's hat and asked where they got it. So Dr. Dean, <laughs> you know, if you want to advertise for the hat company, you save it to the end, but there you go. <laughs> Style icon and paleontologist. Yeah, exactly. Style icon and paleontologist, indeed. Um, you never know. We'll have to start a paleo party hat range. <laughs> I'm, I'm up for that. Um, got I have a polypeat one. So, um, oh, my, my t-shirt. Oh, yeah, and the bivalve t-shirt. Oh, my gosh. That's not... I'm getting too excited again. Um, so, this, so the question I wanted to ask then um, was, what do your experiments show? Yes, that I probably should have said that. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, just that's doing what this I'm here for. I'm really evil and I find it really fun. Um, so basically, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand whether. Um, so, in the fossil record, we have, as I was saying before, we have this assumption that when we find soft-bodied animals um, in a in a community of different fossils that have all been fossilized together. We sort of assume for quite a while that all these animals, they mustn't have been transported. They must have died and lived together. And we rebuild that community based on that, uh, those assumptions. Um, 
But we know that a lot of uh, very important fossil sites called Ligestatten um, that host a lot of these soft bodied fossils uh, that we find um, are they're fossilized in these deposits that represent some kind of flow. And really what my research is trying to do is trying to understand, well, if we go into the field and we uh, look at the evidence of what kind of flow um, was depositing these animals, um, can we recreate that flow in the flume? And when we put a analog organism uh, into the flume, is it going to be completely destroyed or does it actually come out looking kind of okay and it's actually able to um, survive transport to a level that would say to us when we look at that community and we go and look at these fossils, actually the fossil that's been decayed slightly and this fossil here that also looks decayed slightly, one has been transported and one hasn't. Do they look the same? Can we infer the same thing now? Do we know that they are all living there or having this new information of, oh, they actually could have been transported. What does that tell us about where they actually lived when they were alive? And that's important when we're reconstructing these communities, especially when they're really early animal communities. I'm looking at things in the sort of the lower Paleozoic with that research. So just after the Cambrian explosion, which is what, about 500 million years ago, give or take a few. Um, but you know, this is when all life on earth kind of exploded in our, in our fossil records, just at this Cambrian explosion. So these early animal communities, we really need to understand not just obviously the animals that are in them in exquisite detail, but also how are they interacting with one another? Are they living together or are they coming from other environments that in those environments we're not getting those fossils, you know? Mm. And I think another I think another really important aspect of that as well is that um, the other thing that's really important is knowing how the fossils that we find, how representative are they? So these are yeah. often these are organisms that don't look anything like organisms alive today. Exactly. They're very weird looking creatures. And so it's very hard to interpret them. So we need to have really good constraints of, you know, what happens when, you know, decay, transport, yeah. all of these things and preservation. What, what, what effects do the, does taphonomy have on those things? Because if we don't understand that, then we can't make accurate interpretations of these weird fossils. So all this work is super, super important. Um, and that kind of, well, does it? It kind of leads on to Bernard de Gernard's question, which is a great username, <laughs> by the way. Um, do you feel any remorse for your invertebrate victims? <laughs> As a vegetarian, yes. Oh. <laughs> but I try to think that I do buy my purchase my animals in bait shops so they are destined for death <laughs> anyway yeah it does help a lot um that that definitely helps with my moral <laughs> dilemma over over killing these things but it definitely doesn't take away from the fact that you still feel bad <laughs> for sure but at least we know something I would like to think we're contributing to science instead of it just being put at the end of a hook for catching fish or something. So yeah, I would argue it's a better way to go to be tumbled in a giant flume tank than it is to have a hook skewer exactly. you and fed to a giant sea bass. Yeah, and I also will add that I still don't feel as big of a mass murderer compared to say my supervisor, who in his in his some of the research he's done, he's killed thousands of ants 
Uh, he's um, an ecologist and he does um, experiments in ecology and uh, so looking at um, how animals uh, move on the substrate and how they burrow into the substrate and comparing those to fossils of those things and he used ants a lot of the time for, for his stuff so he was quite literally pouring um, liquid down their burrows as well to um, what's it called you know the gel that you use to pour into a into a burrow to harden it and then you have the shape of the burrow to know I, yeah. I do know that in, in some places in America they pour molten metal down yes. the ants so they can create like sculptures which I think is particularly I, cruel that's particularly cruel I have to say my supervisor was doing it for other purposes but um we're not we're not into those antics <laughs> yes uh, but, uh, yeah, right. I'll never get to his level of mass murdering ants because obviously yeah it's a lot easier to kill hundreds of ants than hundreds of wallabies <laughs> I can't I moved on to Arthur Potts now. Now it's Arthur Potts. <laughs> I'm going to ask for my segue again. Can, can, we, can we move on from death? <laughs> um, I wanted to ask um, that if I'm correct in saying that the, the system or the, the Lagerstatten that you most uh, your research most identifies with is the British Shale and you've actually yeah. been there. Yes. Can you I explain, have. first of all, what is it? Where is it? How cool is it to visit it? And anything else you want to say about it? Yes, 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 and yes. Um, so <laughs> that would have been a very short segment if you'd have said no. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Uh, the Burgess Shale is a lower Paleozoic Ligestata. Um, I would argue it's probably the most world famous Ligestata that we have. Um, and it was discovered in 1909. So as I said, just to remind people, a Ligestatten is an area that has amazing preservation of um, fossils that preserve um, soft tissues. Okay, so brains, guts, eyes, muscles, all these very cool things. And the Burgess Shale is a, an air, it's a, it's a Ligestata that was found in 1909 by a man called Charles Walcott and him and his wife, they, I think he was working for like the Geological Society of America or something at the time. And I think he was doing surveys and he was up in the Canadian Rockies in a true explorer style situation uh, on horseback. And uh, he came across a site uh, in the Rockies in Canada where there was um, fossils on this shale, uh, dark rock that sort of looked super weird, one. <laughs> Two, had really delicate fine features of all these you know, soft tissues, but almost looked like it could just basically basically walk off the fossil and as if it was alive today. I think that's kind of sort of how he described it in his notes. Um, so when they went back, I think the following season, because it was the, at the end of a, a season or something, um, because it's in the Rockies, you can only go from certain periods of the year. I think it's sort of March to August, September time because of the snow, obviously. Um, so they went back the following year to a field season and they discovered what, was, what we call now the Burgess Shale and all these amazing fossils. So it's majority made up of arthropods, so things like trilobites, um, that I'm sure a lot of the audience will probably know a little bit better. Uh, polychaetes, I would say, is number two most important. Of course. <laughs> Very important fossil. Ourselves, there's chordates in there too. So our great, great, great far away grandfathers and grandmothers. Um, and basically, the reason why the Burgess Shale is so important um, is because it happens, as I said, just after the Cambrian explosions. It was kind of one of the first Ligestata at this level with this amount of amazing 
soft tissue preservation that was found at the start of the 20th century. Uh, so it sort of became super famous because it's one of the first, I would say, I think there's lots of amazing other Leichhardt now, but I think it holds a special place, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Um, and it, it has a huge source of this sort of biological and evolutionary information. If you're thinking about the Cambrian explo explosion, this is hundreds of millions of years ago. So all of a sudden we're seeing ourselves, these, these first vertebrates over 500 million years ago. So it's extremely important, not just to, to paleontologists, but to biologists and people working on all kinds of sort of evolution and ecologists, absolutely everything. It's giving us an idea of what a community of animals looked like and their the structure, their trophic structures and all sorts of things like that. So I think that's why it, it's, it's, it's hugely important. And basically I went there in, Time ago now, 2015. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was kind of scary. Uh, 2015. I was really lucky, and um, I really didn't think going into my PhD that I would ever go. By the way, that is not why I did this project in the first place. Um, it was more of a, oh, you know, we might go to Canada and look at the ROM, which is the Royal Ontario Museum. Go look at the fossils, and I was like, amazing. That's gonna be great. Can't wait. Um, <clears throat> but I think I was lucky enough to go, and I'm fortunate to to get a permit to actually collect um, rocks there, uh, basically because I was looking at the geology <laughs> and not collecting the fossils. I think I'm the first person possibly to go there and care more <laughs> about the geology than the fossils. Um, so I have to say, I realized for the last five years, I've given a huge amount of talks and nearly every single one almost doesn't have a fossil in it. You know, it's all geological information or it's, you know, a living extant polychaete. There's actually no fossils really ever in my talks. Um, so I sort of feel like a fake paleontologist sometimes. But um, basically when I went there, uh, I was collecting information on, uh, a lot of work had been done on the geology before I had arrived, obviously. Uh, but it had been almost a decade since we had really redefined looking at sort of the, the geological aspect of it and what information we could extract about the kind of flows that were sort of, as I say, you know, when you're reading the rock record, like a book, what is it actually telling us? And um, a lot of information had been done uh, experimentally with flumes in the last decade and sort of recategorizing what kinds of flows happen. Um, so I went out there sort of with the idea to redefine the type of flows that um, people had already said that were probably there um, and how then I could feed that information into an experimental design using the flume. So that's the reason I was there. Uh, so I was allowed to collect uh, what we call sedimentological samples, but I was lucky because I had a group of, I, most of my supervisor team were ichnologists, so people looking at trace fossils, I was out to collect like trace fossils if I found any. So uh, when we went there, I was able to go to the Walcott Quarry, which is the most famous quarry that named after Charles Walcott. Uh, I went to Raymond Quarry, which is about 30 meters just above. And then I went to Stanley Glacier, which is uh, actually in a different uh, national park. And I actually can't remember how far away it is from the actual original site, to be honest now, but. Um, it's another really cool site that you know is after a glacier and I just thought it was awesome uh, and it's a newer site that's kind of been found more recently and what I was doing is comparing the the different sites as well 
so looking at the flows, not just in the Walcott Quarry, but what does the information, geologically speaking, tell us about the Raymond and also Stanley. Um, so I focus mainly on Walcott though, because that is the one that has provided us with the most amount of important information and uh, fossils. So that was kind of an obvious one. And it's also the only one that has polychaetes. Uh, Raymond oh, doesn't have polychaetes, oh. neither does Stanley Glacier. So I always find that still do very interesting. Uh, well, there was one that was meant to be a polychaete that I was shown in the ROM that was from Raymond, but I have debunked that. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure it's an artist. Polychaete queen here. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, I, I, had no idea there was, I had no idea there was such difference between the, uh, any of the different kind of quarries. Oh, uh, so different. Because like, that's another kind of question I was going to ask. Yeah. Like, how is this like, obviously you have different quarries at different like heights mm. in the rocks. That's going to be different times. But like how much yeah. of this is just one event or how much of it is like a series of events adding more information over time? Or is, do we have a good handle on this or is this something we're still trying to kind of figure out? So with the sites that I look, so I should add that there is multiple Burdish Shale sites now uh, in and around the area that I looked at, uh, but they're very well protected um, depending if they're working on them at the time. Uh, so the, what's it called? I can't think of the name of it now, the ones they're looking at at the moment, but uh, I wasn't able to go to the, the kind of the latest, coolest one that has all these really cool fossils coming out of it. Um, but the ones that I looked at are, you know, have been researched in a lot of detail. And from what I remember uh, is, sorry, I'm not working on the bird shell at the moment, so sorry, I'm trying to rack my brain, but um, is the Walcott Quarry is time averaged for sure. Uh, you know, meaning that it's not just one event or, you know, one event built up. We know that there is multiple events in, in different rock layers. Um, the same with Raymond, I'm almost positive about that. Uh, and Stanley is just a whole other ball game. I don't, know, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so different. Um, it's, it's built up of what we call parasequences as uh, so there's five of these uh, different sequences. And it's, it's actually meant to be, I think, uh, um, deposited in a basin adjacent to the basin that the Walcott and the Raymond was deposited in, right? In terms of like a marine, deep marine basin. Uh, so in terms of the sort of geology there, and what we find is very different. Uh, the Walcott Quarry has, I will say no bioturbation. Uh, there is, some people have said there is some evidence for bioturbation. I didn't see any when I was there. Um, there's, there's no, what we call these fossils. So there was no evidence of animals living there in terms of there's no uh, traces of animals moving across the substrate or into the substrate. Um, Raymond, there is trace fossils. Uh, Stanley, there is, hundreds of, tra of trace fossils. So that is, you know, as a geologist, that's a really important uh, piece of information uh, telling us about how the environment must have been different in the Walcott to the Raymond to the Stanley, because that's telling us something about oxygen levels, possibly um, at the Walcott quarry compared to Stanley. Uh, if you have animals moving around the substrate and evidence of that, there must be some bit of oxygen there for them to live there, whereas Walcott there is kind of more stronger evidence to suggest there wasn't enough sufficient sort of oxygen levels for animals to actually live there. And that also feeds into this idea that some of these animals were transported into the environment uh, that they're fossilized in and they're not actually from there. They're coming 
from a different area and um, a different environment altogether. So possibly a more sort of shallow environment. And this is the argument, uh, particularly around that area. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting to study. Um, I should tell you a really funny, can I tell you a funny story that happened when I was there? Yes. <laughs> um, so. I, I promise Ola, we won't tell anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so basically, you know, there's a lot of, you know, documents that you have to fill out and forms and everything uh, to go. And so we, we, we got all the paperwork together. We were really excited. And we went up uh, the first day that I was walking up there. We decided to actually come back because I'm type one diabetic and I ended up going low. <laughs> it was all very dramatic, but it was fine. We were only going up just to kind of look at the site anyway. It wasn't a full day. It was just, I was so excited. I wanted to hike the whole way up to the bridge. Yeah. And so anyway, we came back down and the next day we, you actually have to go kind of later in the day uh, because if you want to look at trace fossils in particular, you need to have a certain light on the rock to actually be able to see them properly at a certain angle. So that's, that's kind of nice. You don't have to be up at the crack of dawn. And um, so we left our campsite and we did a full day uh, at the Walcott Quarry, uh, the most the most famous one. And we came back down much later. And I think it was about 11 o'clock, definitely past 11 o'clock at night that we were all going quite literally saying goodnight to everybody, going into our, our tents and everything. And, uh, you know, beautiful scenery next to a lake. It was all really, really nice. And this, this guy just shows up out of nowhere out of nowhere uh, in full um you know parks canada gear uh kind of looks like a policeman though at the same time and he was like i'm not gonna try the canadian accent now that's really rude but he's like oh hey like have, were you guys at the burgess shale site today and we were like yeah yeah we're we were there we're we're able to we have a research permit he's like oh okay you have you have a permit i i saw you on the cameras and we were oh oh okay so the cameras, we have been told that there is cameras at this site because for Parks Canada, in this national park, this is their number one priority is to make sure that people don't go into this site. And this actually, I think, shows to maybe the non-paleo audience how important this site is. It's a world UNESCO world heritage site. Um, the There's a lot of worlds in that <laughs> title. Um, and basically... Uh, it's protected because it gives us so much information um, about our evolution and about animals, you know, many different animals uh, evolution and all other kind of reasons, I suppose, as well. But um, so it's a very protected site, which is kind of nice to know that, you know, people were watching us and checking that we weren't stealing anything that we shouldn't. Um, and he said to us, oh, I, I need to look at your permit. I, you know, nobody told me when I took my shift that anyone was going to be up there. So we were like, oh, okay. So we went and we try and find it. It took us seven and a half long minutes to find the permit <laughs> because <laughs> we gave it to, I won't name names, someone who should not have been trusted with keeping a permit <laughs> at hand. <laughs> and so seven and a half minutes, we were just sort of awkwardly sitting like, so how long did it take you to come up here? It's like three and a half hours to walk and come tell us that, you know, he thought that we were violating oh, no. the world's heritage oh, oh, site, oh. you know? Uh, so we um, <laughs> we eventually found this permit and showed it to him. Then you know said, "Oh yeah, we're doing the research for this for this woman here," pointing at me. 
we unraveled all the pieces that we had taken that day to, to show him that we hadn't taken any body fossils because our permit obviously wasn't, uh, we weren't allowed to do that. So uh, he went around and said, oh, well, actually cross his arms and look, he's like, where are you, where are you guys from? And turned around to my supervisor, oh, I'm from England, I'm from England. My other one, oh, I'm from Argentina, I'm from Argentina. And then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm Irish, I'm from Ireland. And he's like, no way, <gasps> my auntie's from there, my great great granddad's <laughs> from there. And his entire demeanor changed because I said that I was Irish. It's like, do you know this person? I'm from Limerick, do you know this person? <laughs> so I have to say that was a very lucky kind of thing that I was able to, yeah, sure. I just pretended that I knew all these people that he was talking about. Just like... <laughs> Can you imagine? That's the best bit when he's just like, do you know this person from Limerick? And you're like, oh, actually I do. That's <laughs> yeah. really weird. <laughs> yeah. But that actually has also happened to me before, which is also so, very strange. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, I've had this before as well, where people have said like, oh, do you know this town? Do you know the, the family live in this particular area? And yeah. I'm like, uh, yeah, actually I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to imagine this guy is like fully equipped has a gun I was you know I, I mean obviously it's probably more for the bears than for me but you know I'm I'm not used to seeing guns so it was, I was like okay this site's very important <laughs> <laughs> I think the best weapon that you can have against people being like grumpy at you is being Irish yeah. I swear yeah. Yeah. it's like ha oh, ha this is my other weapon <laughs> it takes that passport <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was, was it was quite funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, like, yeah, the the just to give the audience like a little bit of an appreciation for for this, if you're not a paleontologist, but there are rocks of this age found all over the world, including in the United Kingdom, um, and you know that's where Cambrian things got its name from. And the, the, the fossils from those rocks are just little tiny fragments of hard parts of animals like trilobites and crinoids and bits and bobs like that. So when the Burgess shell was discovered, you know, it was discovered in it was 1907, wasn't it? Which is, yeah, I think officially 1909. Yeah, yeah, something like yeah. that. So, yeah. we, you know, we're only talking like 50 years after Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. So to find soft bodied fossils with that diversity that 500 million years old just created such shockwaves through the scientific community and since then you know the hunt has been on all around the world and I think you alluded to it earlier that we now know that there are different not only sites in Canada but there are sites in China and uh, Greenland and, Greenland and yeah. uh, places in in Scandinavia that have fossils from this age now so it's really important to understand how fundamental and amazing this site is so i think that's why canada takes such good care of it because that's yeah. very proud of their fossil heritage that and the scenery is beautiful as well so the scenery is i mean you're sitting there just eating your ham and cheese sandwich or in my case probably not ham but you know eating your, eating your sandwich. Polychaete sandwich <laughs> yeah. and you know you have vast you know mountains you have i think it's i can't think of the name of the lake that's kind of just below you you have a glacier and you're just sort of you know in a way it sort of deserves that place considering how important it is for, for us. And as paleontologists, we all know how it's the superstar of, of all Ligerstatten. So, you know, we're kind of lucky to have it and it almost sort of makes sense that it's in such a fabulous place as well, you know. <clears throat> that is so lovely. 
Um, I wanted to pick up on something else that you mentioned um, about being like a fake paleontologist and like coming <laughs> yeah. in from, to paleontology from another realm. I totally feel that having come in from biology or zoology. Um, but you came in from marine science. It kind of, I mean, yeah. So I, my my undergraduate degree, which was in uh, in, in Galway, shout out to Galway, best county <laughs> in all of Ireland, and hold on, I'm just gonna let's just. Firstly, firstly, I thought you were going to, I was going to make a joke early on about how you were working for the Pollocky Advertising Board. Also, we don't get any sponsorship from the Iris Tourist Board, so let's just I bring swear, it in. Tourism Ireland needs myself and Emma. Maybe we could request it. Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe we should. We could start every, we could start every paleo party going like, Fulcher paleo party. So just touching on the Irish thing again. I mean, Thomas, you'll know there's a strange, odd amount of toponymists that are Irish, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it <laughs> it's is. weird. Yeah, it is. There's something is... rotten about Ireland, obviously. Uh... Ah. <laughs> Irish, Irish tourism, please don't come after me. <laughs> but it wouldn't work because Ireland doesn't have many fossils. We only have a few, cam- but basically it's an entire. That's because of toponymy, though. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, uh... Just to circle back, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> But going back to going back to Galway, actually the reason I chose Galway was because it was on you know the west coast of Ireland, right on the Atlantic. It totally made sense for my marine scientist career that was <laughs> taking off. Um, but I yeah I did it. So I actually couldn't decide between doing marine science and earth and ocean science. Um, and talking to a girl at an open day, she's like, no, go for uh, go for earth and ocean. Uh, it opens you up to sort of more broader horizons. And uh, so that's <laughs> little what I did. did you know in a few years' time you'd be drowning polychaetes <laughs> in a giant bloom tank? Yeah, and so I, I, I decided to go for earth and ocean, thinking I'd absolutely hate the earth science, had no interest in, in kind of that sort of area of, of doing geology or anything, and found the, the, the marine stuff really interesting, but sort of not as, as fun or sort of as interactive as I found the earth science. And I took paleontology purely by chance. I mean, I had. No, I really didn't want to do paleontology course. I was absolutely against it. And it wasn't just that my friends said, look, we're all doing it. Why don't you do it? I was like, I don't care about dinosaurs. But uh, oh, I was so wrong. <laughs> it is so I went to the to dark side. <laughs> yeah. It's so lovely to hear of so many different ways you can get into paleontology. I'm asked yeah. quite a lot actually by students who are rising up through the, the academic ranks. Like, oh, how do I best get yeah. to a point where I can get a PhD in paleontology? And I'm here like, oh, I don't know, yeah. I just landed here. Yeah, I, 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 just wasn't, I wasn't that kid that enjoyed, no. you know, the fossil stuff for me was just not on my radar. But what was on my radar was, you know, growing up on a small island, I did a lot of water sports. and I spent a lot of time in the sea looking at rock pools unknowing to me doing the same thing that I do now, which is killing shrimp because I used to put them into my granddad's freshwater pond um oh, <laughs> collecting them so nothing has actually changed um so basically but, you're a vegetarian <laughs> for your sins yeah i mean <laughs> basically yeah well i think i think this is a, a really important thing to say to our audience especially to uh we've had a lot of questions in the past from like people asking how to get into paleontology and yeah, yeah things like that but i think i think one thing that's really important and actually a bit of a segue but um i got asked i've been interviewed for uh uh, an outreach project um, called Darwin's Door. Google the Darwin's Door. Go check them out. I like the name already. Yep. It's, uh, <laughs> that's a free plug for you guys, Darwin's Door. But they asked me a great question, like, what advice would you have to someone who wants to be a paleontologist? And 
I think a lot of people have a misconception that a lot of paleontologists are like, you know, hardcore fossil nerds mm -hmm. and they were always obsessed with yeah. dinosaurs as a kid and all this stuff. But m nearly all the paleontologists I know are more <laughs> just curious people who have come into it through yeah. lots of different ways. And the, a piece of advice that I would give to them is, you know, like think out of the box, like, because if you, if you're, yeah. if you want to become a paleontologist just because you really love dinosaurs, you absolutely can, but then you're very buttonholed into working on one particular thing. Whereas to, like, I was about to say taphonomy, but paleontology is such <laughs> so a broad subject because you have taphonomy and then you have the sort of biodiversity stuff that you guys do, the climate yeah. stuff. And, you know, we've had, yeah. we've had people who work on, on, on worms and we've had people who work on fish and, it's a massive it's, subject. It's so broad. It's unbelievable. And I think, you know, when I think about it now, I've, I've come around in a, in, in a really strange way. I feel like I've come full circle because everything that I research and I, and I work on now is all one marine, <laughs> two <laughs> marine animals, three looking at, you know, things that happen in the modern world, like sediment gravity flows and all the rest of it. I'm just looking at stuff that's really, really dead. That's the only difference. <laughs> the only difference. So uh, I'm just, you know, some very strange form of a marine scientist. Yeah. <laughs> you really get oceans that don't exist anymore. <laughs> you really hit the nail on the head earlier when you mentioned that uh, paleontology combines the best of most sciences. Science really like physics, chemistry, biology, and everything in between. And we get to do a little bit of everything. And it's great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I mean, especially when we think of, uh, you know, in Ireland, we don't have geology as a subject. And we, I think we are limited in the sciences that we can do as well. And when I think about, it, I took physics um, at, at, you know, our leaving search A-level situation. And uh, I, well, I absolutely hated physics, but then I took physics again when I went to, to university because I needed it for sort of the ocean science. And I ended up loving it then because I understood why I was using it. So, you know, don't be deterred by the science you learn in school because what science you learn in school is actually not science. Science is being curious about the world, full stop. That's yeah. it. If you're curious um, about the world, science is for you. That is <laughs> such, yeah, yeah, such a powerful message, I think. I agree. Like, I'm absolutely atrocious at maths. Like, I can hardly, <laughs> even now, if you ask me to do my seven times table, I'd probably panic. <laughs> and I don't Speaking say of. that. I don't say that with exaggeration. Like, I genuinely, like, the idea of having to do my times tables in front of people gives me anxiety. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, Mr. Nelson, my maths teacher, he said, Tom, well, people call me Shout Tom. Shout out to Mr. Nelson. Yeah, no, Mr. Nelson. He said, you're, he said, you can't use calculator. You won't have a calculator everywhere you go. Well, you were wrong, Mr. Nelson, because I'm holding up my smartphone right now. <laughs> Uh, and also, I used to get given out to a lot for using my 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 fingers for counting, for figuring yeah. things out. I still do that. No, I do that. Cares. I do that in the supermarket. I literally did it the other day in the supermarket. I was like, I was trying to work out if I could afford to buy some sweets, and I was like, I was counting my, my fingers. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it's worth uh, it's worth repeating that literally all all of us here on this call have PhDs, and I imagine that all of us regularly would be like, oh, what's three times? Five. Oh God, what's going on? Yeah. Like, the, the, yeah, it's completely normal to have to just I don't know, like th that. Be not not so great with some parts of the of, of science, but like it doesn't it doesn't really doesn't matter. Like yeah. it's about things that yeah. you're actually curious in and the things that you have enthusiasm and excitement about. I have I a PhD, so and every fun. day, every day I try to open our front door the wrong direction. 
every <laughs> single day. <laughs> um, I, I think on Chris's point, it's so important to remember that because in school you're taught that the more you know, like the, the better you will be as a, a scientist or any other kind of academic career path. Mm. Um, but actually the best bit about science is that you can innovate and if you don't know the answer you can find a way around it to get yeah. to the right point yeah. and if you don't have if you don't have that knowledge in your head right there to do a times tables you'll find your phone science yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it's a very I think um especially for I think myself and Thomas I think both I think feel the same that you, if you're a creative person to phonemy in particular and doing experiments really fits our niche really well because you kind of need to have a creative mind to do certain aspects of science. And so if you're a creative person, don't be deterred if you think, oh, I'm creative, I'm, you know, X, Y, Z, really good at art. That doesn't mean science is not, not for you. You know, it's actually all the same, you know, curious, creative, creative kind of minds, I think are actually the best sort of people to have in science because they're always thinking outside the box. And, you know, I put worms in washing machines, okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Thinking outside the box is my specialty. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, like, and what all, um, sorry, what Emma said is really important as well. In that, I think one thing that if I, if I could dispel one myth, it's that science is really brainy people sitting in a room and crunching numbers and thinking about answering really difficult questions. And that's an absolute fallacy. It's not true. And all of the best science is done by groups of people. So if I don't know my times tables, or if I'm panicking about coming up with an experimental design, or I don't understand statistics, then work with someone who does know those things, yeah. who yeah. is an expert in those things, and form a collaboration. Exactly. And that's how science works. Like all of yeah. us, but we all overlap in one way and another. So, yeah. I think this is one of the real, I mean, I think it's, it's popular culture, but it's also things like Nobel Prize and stuff like that. It gives this perception that there's just a single person sitting there who's mm -hmm. the genius, figured it all out themselves. And it's just, yeah. it's just not the way it happens. Like yeah. every, all of the best and most exciting science that I've seen people do over my time uh, working in the field is, is by these people who come together from completely separate topics and like, yeah. oh, you're doing this? That's pretty cool. How about this? Does this work with this? And it, it, it's that it sparks off that creativity and excitement. Yeah. Just new ideas. It's that's yeah. It's just the most exciting part about it. That collaboration. Yeah. The fun knew? part of being a paleontologist is knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at, and then like, hey, you there, <laughs> collaborate <laughs> yeah. with me and help me on this part. You know. But who knew that Paleo Party would be so inspirational in our final episode of the season? Oh, <laughs> I know. I know. The only uh, they'll be hiring us at job fairs soon. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's we're coming to the end of the show. We have a few minutes left, and it's that time of the show where I ask a ridiculous question. Um, and Orla alluded to it earlier that oh, no. Orla is a massive rugby fan and rugby player. Mm -hmm. So my question, uh, which is really poorly worded, but I will try and ham it out is um, Orla, if you could play a sport with a team of paleo beasties, what sport would you play and what beasties would you use? So I came up with some examples to try and lubricate the conversation, if you will. And yeah. I thought that the Highland Games with woolly mammoths would be pretty yeah. sweet. Can mm. you imagine a woolly mammoth tossing the camber? <laughs> that would be pretty amazing. Uh, I also, uh, when I was mentioning this, um, I was, I think, I think it's Dinotopia where they have, they ride, um, 
I think they're like the two-legged fast dinosaurs, like Gallimimus or something. And they have like these little uh, lances and they stick them through hoops kind of as they're like racing each other. So there's some examples. What, what, what kind of sport would you play and with what paleo beasties? Okay, number one, obviously going to be rugby. <laughs> <laughs> big, big shot, I know. Um, but it's not just because it's my favorite sport and I'm not biased at all. But I think rugby, I think what a lot of people don't understand about it and why it's so fun and why I love it so much is every single person on the pitch has such a unique job to do. And you need people of all kinds of talent to do those jobs. So therefore, it's actually a perfect sport when you want a range of beasties um, of different fossils to make up your team. So, Ola, how many, Ola, how many players are on a rugby pitch for one team? Uh, for, well, there's two types of rugby game, but the 15, 15 people. Yeah, 15 so, people. So you, you've got, we've got five minutes for 15 animals. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's I joke, start. I joke, let's I joke. Um, so you have the scrum. And that's where you have the front row, which is number one, two, three, and then the second row, four, five, six, blah, 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 as it continues. Then when you go away from the scrum, which is when all the, the men and women are uh, bound together, uh, they're called the forwards. Um, they're kind of the big stocky people, generally speaking, uh, who are normally stronger and really good at tackling. Then you have the number nine, which is uh, sometimes a position that I've played more frequently, which is basically the small, <laughs> I'm very small, um, <laughs> don't know by watching this, but a sneaky player that takes the ball away from the scrum and moves it out to the backs, which is the other players. Um, so you have nine, 10 is the person that kicks the ball generally between those two massive posts. And then you have 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, which are the people that need to be super fast and speedy. So in, in the general sense, so the forwards are normally the strong people, the backs are the super kind of fast people. And then you kind of have the nine in between trying to give the ball to and from the different different groups. Uh, so I think, let me think now. <laughs> now, we've, now we've just had a 10 minute introduction to how rugby works where not a single paleo animal was mentioned i was enthralled like, i love watching irish rugby because it is literally the only sport that we're good at on a world stage but i never understood it until right I'm now just, i'm just gonna not assume that everyone knows what rugby is. <laughs> yeah no i think that's very Sorry. fair not everyone does know what it is. all right well okay um, let's let's change the question then i think as a as a group we need to come up with the animals for the backs the forwards and the, forwards, and the exactly. scrum half. Oh, I yeah. had a really good idea separately yeah. for a change. Okay, well, you can, you can tell us afterwards, Emma. Don't worry, okay, we'll include okay. you. It's okay, fine. so I'm thinking something like Anomalocaris needs to go in the, in the backs, okay? Has the, has, it can swim, so it can go really fast. But what happens Not if you're playing rugby on land? But, but <laughs> if it's muddy? I don't know. Oh, gosh. Slide this about. Is, this is I'm trying to look, anarchy. okay, I'm an invertebrate person till I die, right? Hardcore invertebrates. <laughs> There is going to be invertebrates on this team. <laughs> I knew this would happen. Yeah. I've, oh, gosh. The I did not think this question was afford. Mm -hmm. afford. And mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of something small and sneaky for a nine. Like a velociraptor. Oh. A Dilophosaur. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That would be a nine. Ten, something that can kick a ball well. Wow. I you know anybody who works on um, kicking in the fossil record? <laughs> Interesting. Is uh, that a giant type of kangaroo? Could that vaguely count? I can't Okay, we can put a kangaroo in there. Why not? <laughs> this this has descended cars, into absolute anarchy. <laughs> oh. 
regret my life choices. Large stocky animals would be good as a four. I just keep thinking of a whale, but again, not <laughs> go, a for animal. go for it. Your ASCII paleontologist only has ever looked at marine animals to think of terrestrial things. You put yourself in this position by choosing rugby. <laughs> you only have yourself to blame. You could have chosen water polo. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Nasaba says it could be aquatic rugby, and I guess it could be, but... Exactly. I mean, uh, a lot of the times it is aquatic rugby if you're playing in Ireland. I was about to say. <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is water rugby a thing? Uh, no, but snow rugby is, which is um, something that we play here. Uh, yeah. I missed I going to Russia last year. Uh, when there was a conference in Spain, in Valencia, when we all went to that one, <laughs> to play rugby in the snow. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah that, so, you can imagine that's cold. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that must be a little bit frozen. Yeah, for me, it's the heat now. They play in the summertime here, which really gets it up. Yikes. Yeah. Okay, well, after that car crash of a sport with paleo beasts. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, what was yours? You seemed very excited. Oh, so I've been thinking about this for a while. And uh, before anybody starts on me, yes, this is a real sport. I've actually played it when I was at uni. But hear me out. Quidditch. Yes. Massive dragons, dragons, dragonflies <laughs> from the Carboniferous. How oh, cool, cool that's would cool. that be? Wait, do we ride the dragonflies? Yes. Oh, right. Okay, yes. wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember going past the university once in a field and people were playing Quidditch. And I really had to be like, are they? Playing what yes, I think. we were. My <laughs> <laughs> favorite was. Pardon? Can I chuck my idea in the ring? Yes, yeah. please. I'm going to go with Ankylosaur Golf. Big <laughs> <laughs> old oh. rock, smash them across the ground. It would be amazing. It would be so satisfying. <laughs> like Turbo Golf. Turbo Golf. <laughs> <laughs> That actually sounds like a golf I want to watch in fairness. Yeah, that would be pretty You'd have to, are you, can I just clarify, are we using a golf ball or are we using like a, a scaled up ball? I think we'll use a scaled up ball. It'd be more okay. fun. Yeah. Um, I, and a bit more accurate, I'd, I'd imagine. Gosh, yeah. Considering I've decided to make my rugby an underwater rugby, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Given that mine's a magical sport anyway. Like. <laughs> So uh, we, we had a great comment in the chat where they said that uh, the great thing about ankylosaurs is that they could be the golf cart as well. Oh. <laughs> Perfect. I think this is genius. Yeah, I it think you absolutely better. nailed this. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Well, Thomas, how about you? You're the last one. Oh, gosh. Do you know what? I'm so broken from the idea of playing rugby <laughs> with theropods and... Ah, uh, I, I had I, I had something, but it's gone out of my head, and now I'm struggling to think of something. You're just so baffled by our, by our wonderful ideas. I'm desperately looking around me to get inspiration, but all <laughs> I can see is just nothing. It's helping. Um, maybe something that will use different lengths of polychaetes to measure out the distance. <laughs> so in <laughs> so all of these sports, all, this, all of the lines and all of the scoring polychaete. posts are lined out with polychaetes. Polychaete yeah. long jump. Polychaete <laughs> long jump. There you go. Perfect. Stretched would... in a flume time first, of course. I've never seen a polychaete jump, but there we go. That isn't to say they can't. They probably can. They can swim. They They're can definitely swim. They can swim, so... 
There we go. And well, that we circled back around to barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I think after all that debauchery, I think that's that's probably a good time to call the end of it. So, uh, you know, all good things have to come to an end, and we've run out of time. So uh, normally at this point, I say we'll be back in two weeks, but we're we're not because this is the end of our first season, and we're going to take a little bit of time off, and we're going to. Um, go away and we're going to collaborate and rack our brains <laughs> to come up with what we're going to do next and we've got some exciting plans um but we'll probably be back after the new year um in the meantime you can still listen to all of our podcasts on spotify youtube anchor and pretty much anywhere else you can download your podcasts and um our website is fully updated as per usual with lots of useful links and Basically, I guess that just leaves us to say thank you very much to Orla. You've been a wonderful guest. So thank, thank you very much. You. I'm sorry if I talked a bit too much about rugby at the end, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and um, I, the last thing is, I just want to say uh, thank you very much to everyone in the chat. Um, there's been lots of interesting questions. And thanks very much for, for tuning in. Um, we There is a possibility that we might come back for a, a mini Christmas special, but we don't know if we're going to do when we're going to do that yet. So keep an eye on our Twitter um, for all of the updates. And I guess it just leaves us to say goodbye. Thank you very much and have a great Christmas and a happy new year to everyone who celebrates Christmas. Happy if you Christmas, don't celebrate Christmas, guys. have a great holiday period. Sounds good. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.